School of Prayer helped me become more humble as I realized how difficult it was for me to keep a regular discipline. The most challenging part of the School of Prayer was giving myself the grace necessary to grow and being patient and allowing the Spirit to do His work. The School of Prayer helped me to realize that I need to live a contemplative life. And it also helped me, in the context of a group, make this a reality. The most challenging part of uh, SOP was probably the, the pressing together of contemplation um, and social justice. Pressing them close together was uncomfortably helpful. And it's a rigor rooted in my experience or my acceptance as the beloved responding to that belovedness with devotion. I recommend the School of Prayer to anyone who wants to um, dig deeper and learn more about contemplative prayer practices. My word of wisdom to anyone who decides to do the School of Prayer is be patient and trust the work of the Spirit in you. One word if you choose to do School of the Spirit. Do what you can, not what you can't. Amen. To learn more about our formation schools, the School of Prayer, and our two-year certification in spiritual direction, the School of Contemplative Listening, and our August 4th family camp, please visit theinvitationcenter.org. We are currently recruiting for cohorts beginning in the fall of 2021. Open unto me light for my darkness. Open unto me courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confession. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. So as we approach chapter one of our book for the summer, Reparations, a Christian Call for Repentance and Repair, I have assembled a growing list of presenters, people that I have known and people I want to know to help me unpack each chapter. So for this chapter, I am sitting here with Kate Coyman. Welcome, Kate. Thanks. <laughs> Kate and I were in campus ministry together at Hope College, 
and uh, we've continued to be friends. She's someone that I continue to uh, learn from and learn with. I would say Kate Coyman and then Kate Davilar Guthrie, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is now out east, and then my wife, who presented on the last episode, are the three women who have challenged me, encouraged me uh, to bring, as a, as a worship leader, you know, my my gaze, my daily heart instincts into the arena that we could call the justice work of of the kingdom of God. So, um, what else have you been up to since Hope College? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking before you before we started this that when we worked together at Hope College, I. I was super excited um, to get a BlackBerry that I could use for work. <laughs> that was like how long ago this was. So um, I I went to seminary and I'm ordained in the Reformed Church in America, but I have never been a church pastor. I went to seminary because I felt like I wanted to help the church think about mm-hmm. issues of institutional injustice mm-hmm. in ways that I just hadn't been given, um, because it had been such an important part of my faith formation at that point, understanding injustice and understanding how Christians. Mm -hmm. So understanding um, that that you could engage with injustice as a real true fact Mm -hmm. (laughs) from a perspective of your faith had really saved my faith. Um, And I wanted to be involved in making that possible for other people. Anyway, that's why I went to seminary. So working at Hope was a way to do that. And another way that I did that for a long time was that I worked at the Christian Reformed Church in their um, denominational headquarters. They have an office of social justice. So my job there was to like go and educate congregations, especially around, um, I really focused a lot on immigration reform. Mm -hmm. And then um, we also worked on criminal justice reform, which, of course, you know, there were a lot of other issues that we worked on, too. But those were the two that I really focused my attention on. And, of course, those are both so wrapped up Mm -hmm. in um, issues of race. Mm -hmm. And so as a white person doing that work, this is this conversation that we're going to have today is just so much of what has formed me in terms of my understanding of like, what's the church? Mm. Who am I? Um, who is God? Mm. And uh, yeah. What does it look like for me to be part of a community of a beloved community? Mm-hmm. Like all those things I think are just, mm-hmm. they're so deep in, in my understanding of what this whole thing mm-hmm. is about. So that's what draws you. Mm-hmm. to this particular book. How have you found the book as a whole? I mean, I think I texted you and said, this book is so crazy good. Mm-hmm. I I was, you know, I I love reading like Christian-y. I, I'm like a little Christian booky nerd, you know? And like what I like to do is like have the book and then pick it up and flip through it and maybe read a few things so that I can speak intelligently about it and then whatever. This one I, feels so different to me because partly I think it so clearly lays out um, in a very efficient way. Yeah. Like what what it is that we're talking about here and what we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. I think it's really feels so accessible, not not just to people who are like brand new to the conversation, although I imagine 
it is accessible in that yeah. way. But it's also, I think, very, very helpful. Um, like, I don't fancy myself an expert in this stuff, but I have been thinking about it for a while. And I find that there's just so much there mm-hmm. um, because of the just careful and strategic and interesting mm-hmm. weaving of story together with um, just facts mm-hmm. about this nation's history. Um, and it's not overly pastoral in the way that I feel sort of um, like Christianity becomes a tool. Yeah, that's good. It's just pastoral in a way that it's accessible Mm -hmm. and so truthful. Yeah. And I can absorb it in a way that allows me to still feel like I am. Mm -hmm. um, It's not one that you have to like throw across the room or set it down and take a huge break for a long time or you can't stay a Christian. Sure. There are books like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, this yeah. is too true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As Jesse Curtis and I unpacked this in our discussion, the introduction of the pastoral tone, mm-hmm. now sitting with you, that strikes me, that could be difficult for some people that have had tough experiences with different types of ministries, different types of churches, different types of pastors. So what I would say is there's something redeeming and, and, and dignifying about the pastor as uh, what I'm hearing you say is as a generosity where there's a boldness. If we can imagine Mm -hmm. (laughs) that a, a conversation partner could be both bold, loving, and also give you space your own dignity to discover these things. I think they capture that well in this. And I think that you can be, you know, a lot of different stripes of Christian Mm -hmm. to to find this book to be written from a faithfully Christian Mm -hmm. perspective. I think I have a pretty like high radar for, um, yeah, like could, could someone who really comes from a deeply evangelical background or someone who who really is averse to the idea of you know yeah. evangelicalism or whatever yeah. could, could I think people from lots of different expressions of yeah. Christianity could find this book to be faithfully yeah. um, centered in that yeah. Uh, yeah faithfully centered in Christianity without it feeling yeah. like excluding them yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean totally which makes this books so valuable right. in church right now right. because there are a lot of us who I think aren't right aren't quite sure where we would place ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're uh, amongst the pastors that I know and serve. Yeah, who's going to return to church after all of this? Mm-hmm. How has the last year, the last 4 years shifted our our, our sense of identity? Mm-hmm. And um, so I keep coming back to wanting to pitch the importance of this book because I- I'm surprised how difficult it's become to get folks' attention to attend to this. And I'm, I'm like a, a moth to the flame. And so this just makes total sense to me. But what I've said in, in uh, my conversation with Susanna is there seems to be two, two things that we can— respond to, ultimately, we'd like to respond particularly with reparations. But the first thing is, how do I get to become the kind of person where reparations make sense? And what I'm experiencing is 
all right, I had you and Kate D and my wife and now Pastor Denise. And I've had a community working with me for 15 years at least to then become the kind of person that is a moth to a flame with this. There's a lot of people who are just barely beginning to want to talk about these things at all. And then there's also from you saying from those that would self-identify as more progressive, how can I do this kind of work in a sustainable way that has the nourishment of the presence of God? Um, So that's all to say it's not too late for people to gather people together um, to join in for just a couple chances to sit down and dive into this important topic. So with that said, I've invited Kate here to help me dive in and access this chapter one, which is a call to see, which as a spiritual director, I mean, that's, you know, that's catnip, you know, seeing is so much a part of the discipline of a Christian, of a, of a person. How do I see myself? How do I see my neighbor? How do I see the world? How do I see God? Um, but then particularly, uh, we're not just talking about kind of an academic seeing. Um, there's a real emotional work to seeing this. So with that, help us dive into the vocabulary of this chapter. What are we being invited to see? Mm-hmm. I was excited that this was the chapter that I got to talk about with you because when I read it, I kept thinking about, um, for those who are from like a reform background, you might know about the Belhar confession, Mm -hmm. which has been a really sort of beautiful framework for me. Mm -hmm. Um, as I have just thought through this whole idea of injustice and faith in Jesus, what, what does the gospel have to do with all of these things? Um, that can be so overwhelming. And one, there's this beautiful line in it that has just stayed with me for so long. And in the bell heart, it says that we are called as a church to know and bear one another's burdens mm-hmm. and the bear one another's burdens part. That's from scripture, right? Mm-hmm. But the bell heart, I think that the bell heart adds, adds the no part, mm-hmm. which just leapt out at me. Um, mm-hmm. as, because I think what it spoke to for me was this journey that I feel like I have had to go on you know, there have been, I could name people in my life, too, who have have patiently, lovingly helped me to know things that mm-hmm. I think um, this American culture that I grew up in, maybe this church culture, too, never intended for me to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought maybe it was my job to bear burdens of, of poor and oppressed people, mm-hmm. but to know the burden— mm-hmm makes the bearing of it quite different, I think. So that's what I think this, because I think knowing someone, seeing someone, first of all, it's lifelong, Mm -hmm. right? Like anyone who's been married knows this. Mm -hmm. You never fully see someone. Mm -hmm. And it also, it just requires that you dignify the person that Mm -hmm. you see. And the dignity part is so important to this conversation about racism, Mm-hmm. I think. Um, and it's so important for me in my conversation about like, what is the good news? Mm-hmm. Being seen by God, I think is like such an important part of what I'm discovering my faith is even about. Mm-hmm. Like God sees me, God loves me. 
well, then what in the world does it look like to love my neighbor if I refuse to see? Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Right. So there's such a depth to this. Um, you know, this chapter is called The Call to See. And I think um, what what the authors do so well is help to make a case that, like, as a white person, there's so much that I don't see. And part mm-hmm. of that is because there's a whole system mm-hmm. that is very invested in me mm-hmm. never seeing it. Um, and that is diametrically opposed to what Jesus came to do and be. And um, I just love, I just loved the way that they reveal that um, and, and what it sort of helps me to open up and allow God to do anyway. So the call to see and, and the idea here, I think that the authors are trying to help us to understand is that racism can mean lots of different things mm-hmm. to lots of different people. But for this book, um, what they kind of land on is the idea that racism is so thoroughly embedded in the culture of America Mm -hmm. and in the culture of the American church, I would say, too, um, that we struggle to see it. But until we see it, uh, we are really none of us will be free or really able to follow Jesus. Yeah. That's my summary. (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) I mean, let's just pause. Uh, We'll talk about the particular Mm -hmm. ways of seeing the of the levels of racism, but that's a good explanation that we are challenging the way that we understand the gospel. That if we cannot penetrate the layers of racism. Mm freely and lovingly with hope and joy, even while it's scary, then we're not really accessing the depths, the width, the breadth, the penetrating gift of the gospel. Right. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's so challenging, but I also think, I like the way you said it because... You know, as a white person engaging in these conversations about race are inevitably, like, painful. Mm -hmm. Um, They're awkward. They make me feel vulnerable. Um, I make mistakes. I hate making mistakes. I hate making mistakes publicly (laughs) the most. Oh, man. (laughs) And that it just requires that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To do it in in earnest, I guess. Mm so I think that we can, as white people, kind of trying to get other white people to talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. I think we can sometimes in our in our desire to, like, be real, mm-hmm. we can paint this picture that, like, this is, this is super hard and terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. You should do it anyway if you want to be a good person. Right. But I think what you are helping to open up is that actually it's, like, it's hard in the best way. Right. It's hard in the way that leads mm-hmm. to freedom mm-hmm. um, for you too, mm-hmm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the whole whatever called you to follow Jesus in the first place. Right. Like right. that's what this is. Amen. And um, right. that to me, like right. that's different. That's a different marketing strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly right. I mean, yeah. How will we message this? What is the way that we communicate in the largest ways about what Jesus is here to do amongst us. 
Yeah, underneath this, what I love about what you just said is this personal account of how uncomfortable this is. Mm -hmm. I don't like doing things wrong. And that's really at the core of the resistance all of us have in doing anything more as Christians. When it comes to just spiritual formation practice, nobody wants to be bad at prayer. (laughs) Nobody wants to be bad at studying the scriptures. We all want to come to this with a kind of mastery. And and this is the the wisdom that we sat with, the school of prayer, coming back to Benedictine, always I begin again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merton would say, before God, we are all beginners. So when we come to this enormous conversation of racism, part of it is giving ourselves permission to be bad at this giving ourselves permission to be beginners. And I think that flies in the face of so much, whether it's implicit or explicit, that I learned uh, being formed as a Christian mm-hmm. my whole life in a in a very white context. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was ever intended to, and this message was, well, maybe it was intended to be sent to me. I don't know. But I think that I, I never... Um, I I did not learn to defer to the wisdom mm. of people who were different from mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. until much later in mm-hmm. life. <laughs> yeah. um, I I had to really learn that mm-hmm. that 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 was part of what it looked like to be a, a Christian is this this deference. Mm-hmm. Um, which is nuts to me now that I look back, <laughs> right? At like, I mean, what in the world yeah. are, you know, some of the the saints, you know, who sacrificed, who led the civil rights movement from this deep place of Christian liberation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there the the, de- the depth of wisdom about what it means to follow Jesus that comes just from mm-hmm. that one story mm-hmm. i think um there's just such freedom and richness in learning from that but i don't think that i learned to defer i think what i learned mm-hmm. was um that i that, that i was to be a servant leader mm-hmm. which really meant that i was um to take all this this gift that i had um, and to sort of bestow it upon yeah. people who didn't have it. And yeah. the ones who didn't have it were sort of inevitab- mm-hmm. inevitably black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of, you know, the mission projects that I did, um, the urban ministry things that I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess I, as I look back on it, there are few uh, African-American people who were... Mm-hmm. Uh, peers to me, most of the interactions that I had were um, I was helping, saving, fixing, serving. And that was taught to me Mm -hmm. as this is what it looks like for you to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. You help and fix and save and serve. Mm -hmm. And of course that means that Mm -hmm. there's a hierarchy. Yeah, so what we're saying then is the posture from which we're seeing whether we're coming alongside or above. It's going to be really hard for us 
to really attend to this conversation if we remain above. And I had to be able to see it mm-hmm. in me mm-hmm. um, and then stay resilient enough to be able to like stay in the conversation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, to keep learning. Um, and I'm not saying that like I've completely rid myself of this like white supremacy that's in me. I think sure. it's still there. Sure. Um, but man, is that eye opening when you catch yourself and you and then you have the language mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is a spiritual. It is a spiritual discipline to remember that I am beloved, mm-hmm. even when I am catching myself being, thinking, mm-hmm. uh, acting in ways that mm-hmm. dehumanize other people, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I think this intersects with the yeah. spiritual formation stuff for me, is that there's a, there's something really beautiful about the idea that God sees me, even that part of me, mm-hmm. and calls me beloved. Yeah. Well, then I can stay in this thing. Yeah. I can still do it. Um, because... God actually doesn't call me to save and fix and help and serve. Mm-hmm. Um, God calls me to be beloved and to see others as beloved. Yeah. That's a really different way of engaging. And this just draws us back to where Pastor Nice began by cautioning, you know, we're not here to point out, to run around going, you're racist, you're white supremacist, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you. It all comes back then to, I have to, attend to my formation, this humility that creates God's space. That's what we're calling folks to. Um, And so the crazy thing, I can't help but insert this, is my journey in the prison. Uh, Again, I'm not here to (laughs) self-congratulate. I'm here to bear witness to the gift of the Spirit because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And then a couple years go by and I'm trying to develop a nonprofit to help sustain and support going into a prison twice a month to pray with men. And, I, and I'm trying to communicate this. It's not, you know, from the inside out, it's not uh, prison ministry. Mm-hmm. People kept wanting to partner me with people that have been doing prison ministry for a long time. And so I just learned how to say, I'm not going to the prison to take Jesus there. Jesus is already there. And I'm actually going because I'm desperate to be able to see Jesus amongst, quote unquote, the least of these, the people that are forgotten, because that actually gives me hope in the gospel to then come back and do my marriage and my family. And so so that's also the other, you know, uh, effective, attractive way to draw people deeper into this is that I've tried to message this, is that if you want to discover more of God, then find God in this conversation. Um, it, uh, it is uncovering, it is um, freeing us from the posture of having to have everything right. <laughs> it's freeing me from having to know it every, everything. So, so uh, there's so much to go on about that, but let's dive into the yeah. book. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so help us understand the context and the structure of the chapter. I think one of the the parts about this book that will be really valuable in a sustaining way is the way the authors kind of describe ways of seeing racism. Mm-hmm. And there's four ways that they lay out. And I feel like when I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. 
And then I would read the next one and be like, okay, that's me too. You know? Um, so, and it's helpful to understand the distinctions. I think um, people will find this to be really a tool that they'll go back to, I guess. Yeah. So um, the first is racism as personal prejudice, which I think is probably everybody's beginning point. Um, well, all white people's beginning point. <laughs> so the idea that um, we... Racism is sin that we hold within us. I am a racist um, and that I have to change my heart. Um, I think that repentance in terms of my own personal sin is absolutely part of this. I mean, you have to have an openness to that um, to be able to to do this conversation or like to be a Christian in general, I would say. But I think that that idea of I am a racist is sort of like the first step. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty tempting, I think, to get stuck there. Um, and sort of once you have confessed that sin, started walking this repentance journey that maybe you're good. Yeah. <laughs> but of course we know that um, you have to actually live that out. So then they talk about racism in terms of your relationships. Mm-hmm. So if relationships are divided, then what it looks like to to try to combat that is reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I think if you've been a part of the evangelical world for any length of time, you know mm-hmm. that racial reconciliation is the language that we use mm-hmm. to talk about the goal. Um, it's, you know, it's biblical concept. Mm-hmm. We see it. We have this idea we are called to be reconcilers. Um, so having friendships, relationships, having um, times when you, you know, get, get led by, people of color as a mm-hmm. white person. I think all those things are like super important and formative mm-hmm. in helping to recover this, what's been lost mm-hmm. that what racism has taken um, from all of us. And I want to yeah, put a, um, a note on that. If you have not listened to the episode I was recommending from the past the mic podcast with Jamar Tisby and Tyler Burns, they unpack their discomfort with the way that we have held on to reconciliation. And this, again, goes back to Jesse Curtis's comment that I think Quan and Thompson attend to is that we have thought about relationships on our terms. We have thought about Christianity on our terms. So that, that, I, that deference that you're talking about, being able to oh, there's more of God for me to perceive through this relationship that's completely outside of my culture. I don't have to somehow interpret this back into my safe world. As, and um, Willie James Jennings would call that assimilation. What I'm actually doing is allowing this relationship to expand me. So the way they say that here is it's rather about the cultivation of friendship and the creation of a community that bears witness to the reality of life beyond estrangement. So that would be the discernment question. If I'm developing relationships with people of color, where is the estrangement still here? Mm -hmm. How am I still trying to control and estrange? How am I just letting this person be who they are? So practically for me, uh, at my church, it's the question of code switch. And I will see black people 
yucking it up, having fun, being themselves. And then I come over to talk to one of them and all of a sudden they code switch. And uh, that confuses me, but it makes total sense. <laughs> I'm not safe yet. As, as much as I've been a part of this church, th- there's a way of speaking white. There's a way of speaking black. And so there already still is built in to my own worshiping community an estrangement that I can't suddenly fix. And I can't be offended by that, or I can't even try to, I don't even know what to want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's part of the the nitty gritty of when folks start to have those relationships. How am I noticing estrangement? Yeah, I think that that example, actually, I like feel it Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's, you know, one of the, one of the really hard things about centuries of oppression and supremacy yeah. <laughs> that we live in, right, is that it is it is impossible to have friendships mm-hmm. that, that stand outside of that, of yeah. the water of that, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, you just said, I'm not safe yet. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a part of me that wants to say, you know what, actually you may never be safe right, right. because you can't I- extract yourself from yeah. it and nobody can. Right. I think that I went through a time I had to kind of recognize that, that yeah. like, I felt like what, what it would look like to succeed in my racial justice journey is if I had, I want to have close friendships with, mm-hmm. with people of color it, there's a fine line between that yeah. and, and having people become a project or a tool right. for your own um, vanity oh, yeah. or uh, a justification. Um, Catharsis of my white guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like happy to have friends who yeah. are people of color, but I do think that I have to be open to the idea that that for me and for them mm-hmm. will always be a different kind of relationship. Yeah. Um, and there's something that, that it sucks. Yeah. Uh, and also I think that we, I have had to not be blind to that. Right. Right. <laughs> or, or insist that we all pretend that it's not right. that way. Right. right. Um, which is tough, right? Because I think the other thing that's like exhausting mm-hmm. is for for my my black friends or whatever is like to always have to be talking about. It. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Oh, here comes Kate. She always wants to talk about racism. You know, <laughs> like I don't know. So yeah, you know, friendships are yeah are are tricky and complicated because mm-hmm. people are tricky and complicated. But I do think that mm-hmm. like this racial reconciliation thing, one of the ways it can go wrong, yeah, is when we like. Uh, use people yeah. as tools for our own righteousness. Right. And I think it can yeah. be very easy to do that, yeah. you know, or it's like kind of the Instagram version <laughs> of like of your life. You know, I'd like to curate this life that feels like it's justified yeah. to me. Look and at me. I marched last summer. I'm, you know. Yeah. Or like, yeah. I, you know, I went on a mission trip and, yeah. and I'm going to pose with, I mean, I did all these things. So, like, totally. I, I'm talking about myself right yeah. now. Um, but catching that that is actually, you know, there is a huge part of Kate's ego that's that's happening with mm-hmm. all of that, too. And I need to do the work of yeah. recognizing that um, instead of continuing to expect right. other people to pretend right. with me. Right. So we're here only in the second 
well, there. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, let's just pause here and say it's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's entanglement. It is, um, but this is the, the, this can be, this has the potential to shut us down and to decide, well, I don't, I don't have the resources to do that. So again, this is where the, the help of the spirit is here to goad us to deeper love, to bear. This is, these are the kinds of burdens when, when Paul says we we're called to bear burdens, mm-hmm. That this is what we're doing. Yeah, it's never going to be ideal. Right. It's it's hard work, and hey, guess what? Like mm-hmm. you've been sort of anesthetized to it, mm-hmm. and and you know you're starting to feel it a mm-hmm. little bit. Hey, guess what? Everybody else been feeling it the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. I think that's the other thing too it's is good. this idea that like, uh, it's not it's not that I'm choosing to dial into this. It's yeah. that. It's that I'm seeing it clearly. I'm feeling mm-hmm. a little bit of it for the first time, and oh, it feels terrible. Yeah. Um, but also, it's real. Mm-hmm. Isn't that better? Mm-hmm. In the long run, isn't that better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, it takes some sustaining, um, a decision to stay in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So number three. Number three is um, racism as institutional injustice. So. Mm-hmm. This is where I feel like I got my big energy boost when I discovered the idea that I could engage in Mm -hmm. um, a calling to systemic change. Um, So that's where when I kind of described my calling to ministry, it has to do with this idea of institutional injustice. So, you know, we don't we're not going to love our way or friend friend our way mm-hmm. or sorry our way out of this problem mm-hmm. but i think uh for a long time maybe still mm-hmm. in many ways i believed that the way to solve this was through um systemic change which looked like policy change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i want to say super clearly we got so many policies that sure. need to change um, and that we cannot fix what is broken in our society if we don't fix the rules that we are living with. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the goal of, you know, the civil rights movement was, for example, the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just be nicer mm-hmm. or change your heart, white mm-hmm. people. It was pass this law. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks don't might not know that Dr. King's latest his final work was the poor people's campaign it wasn't just racial justice he was thinking about the systemic inequality the inequity for all people how are we going to be able to heal racism well we got to figure out how to deal with the wealth gaps so that's 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 how these issues of justice are so inter intertwined so intertwined yeah. absolutely so I think that that's a huge piece where we lose a. I, I feel like we lose a lot of unity. <laughs> yeah, right. In this conversation in the church is when we start to talk about all right. So you know, even right now there are all of these. Just to take the voting example, mm-hmm. there are all of these state-based laws that are, that are sort of mm-hmm. trying to be passed um, in Michigan and in lot, where I live and in, mm-hmm. in lots of other states. That a lot, a lot of activists are saying would essentially roll back uh, race-based voting equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're essentially intended to mm-hmm. keep people from exercising their their 
rights um, mm-hmm. to participate in democracy, which is really about their dignity as people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it really matters that Christians <laughs> start to understand this is where it plays out, yeah. you know? It's not that you didn't grow up in a segregated neighborhood mm-hmm. accidentally. Mm-hmm. You grew up in a segregated, I grew up in a segregated neighborhood because of the ways that real estate mm-hmm. was bought and sold because mm-hmm. of the policies yeah. that existed. And so one of the ways that we may be able to make a dent in equity mm-hmm. is through addressing, you know? Yeah. And, and you know... It's all the things that has to do with, yeah. you know, criminal justice and, and all the things. To get at that division, the polarization, mm-hmm. we might have some people that would say, okay, I can attend to this in my own world. I want to do some relational work. But all of a sudden, we're talking red versus blue when we think about what this means. Um, so to back up from that, to give people space— from the vocabulary of spiritual direction, we're always thinking about integration. Mm-hmm. So I can see some people that are so heavily on the, the systemic, the institutional issues that have some more work to do, surprisingly, on their own lingering racism. So this is the conservatives' pushback about the bleeding heart liberal who wants to always just legislate things but has not yet attended to their own personal work and then um so then people from the other side that don't know how to have a conversation with people that are wanting to dive into the actual policies we're saying that seeing yourself more clearly and then actually having more human interaction with the oppression of black people, that will then position you at a place where you could integrate into getting into this conversation on policy. So this is the discernment for each of us this summer is where is the next step for me? Jesse gave us early on the question of white supremacy is context. What's your context? So that would be my hope before we get on to number four. What, what do I... What's my next step? So, um, and then, yeah, go go for it. Yeah, next yeah. one. Um, okay. So I think then the, the, the fourth idea here, or the fourth way of seeing racism, which is I think the way the book wants to talk about it for the rest of the book, right, yeah. is this idea that racism is a cultural mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm. That it is uh, deeply embedded in who we all are together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they say specifically racism mm-hmm. is an entire culture, a comprehensive way of being and doing that is embedded in our structures of meaning, morality, language, and memory, mm-hmm. and expressed in our patterns of individual, social, and institutional mm-hmm. behavior. So they kind of want to say, yeah, it's all of the three. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why it's so important. And yeah. that's why it's so hard. And that's why we can get stuck yeah. talking about it in ways that are too limiting. Yeah. Um, because it's it's kind of all of those things. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's just important to wrestle yeah. with. Yeah. yeah. The pushback mm-hmm. on critical race theory yeah. and the, the, this is for those that are outside of academia, the history of uh, critiquing Western culture through colonialism. It's scary for people that have never looked at this. But what I want to suggest is that critical race theory critique, the colonial critique doesn't go deep enough. It's even scarier. And we can see this as people of faith. We go back to Romans, you know, beginning in chapter three, none of us are righteous. Mm -hmm. There's not even one. And then we get on to what Paul defines sin as. He's understanding that sin, he says, is in my members, the distortion of my very understanding of truth and holiness is inside of my being. Mm-hmm. So when I use these conversation partners of my neighbors, uh, the authors use Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is not a person of faith. Mm-hmm. I can listen to these voices as a kind of mirror to see things that I can't see right now on my own. And it seems scary, it seems threatening, if I don't come with the gospel, if I don't come with the hope. So we are are saying that, yeah, we want to pay attention to these voices. I don't want to be a part of their projects. I want to be a partner in hoping for the best of all people. But ultimately, I'm a gospel project. And so it's deeper and scarier than I could imagine. And I can face that because I have the hope of redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's making me think a little bit about, um, so I'll maybe like out myself as being a like (laughs) bleeding hard liberal, like (laughs) what you just said, you know, um, I think one of the things about me being so drawn to this idea of systemic change, Mm -hmm. um, I think that I really wanted to believe in the progress part of being progressive, Uh. And I wanted to to feel like I was uh, an an effective member of that project, right? Mm -hmm. That I brought something to the table and that I could see the effect of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I sort of understood cognitively that like what, you know, the the long arc of history bends toward justice, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to see the bend. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I want to be able to see it. And I I will confess, and there are probably people listening who will not understand this, but I will confess that part of what happened for me in my faith journey during the uh, Donald Trump presidency, because I was working so hard on immigration stuff, and the first day of um, Donald Trump's presidency was these just very decisive actions um, against immigration, which just started a whole slew of policy changes, mm-hmm. which I had been paying such close attention to, um, that felt like they were just the opposite mm-hmm. of the progress that I thought we were making. Mm-hmm. It became kind of a spiritual struggle for me. Mm-hmm. I started to question like, well, what am I doing? Yeah. Am, I, am I called to this? Am I effective? Does it even matter? Is God involved? 
And I, I guess I'm saying this as a confession, not um, like a, just to sort of be transparent about yeah. Yeah. Who, I, who I am. And I think what I discovered is this idea of progress was sort of a lie that I had believed. Mm. That doesn't mean that God doesn't make do, real do things, change, yeah. you know, or whatever. Sure. Yeah. But um, I had to really wrestle with this, what I had decided my role was in mm. that and how much of my own sense of ego was wrapped up in it. Yeah. Um, and, and how vulnerable it felt to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, how easy it felt to me to just be like, you know what, never mind. <laughs> and and that that was, I think, an expression of my whiteness, mm. actually. What whiteness had taught me mm. was not resilience in the face mm-hmm. of wow. struggle. Or it was it was this idea that like I can be effective, mm-hmm. I can get what I want. Mm-hmm. And at the second I don't, I want to just put my hands up and walk away. Yeah. Which is where I think some of the um, the community of saints yeah. that looked like the folks who were able, in the face of just sure defeat, mm-hmm. they were able to still be leaders and yeah. still call on the hope of the gospel. That, it just breathed life to me in a time I think I really mm-hmm. needed it because that ego was like just mm-hmm. really being deconstructed for yeah. me. There's... That's that's where it became tangible to me that mm. we need each other mm. and not in this way that's like kumbaya like <laughs> I know I'm supposed to say that but mm-hmm. like I needed to understand I needed to sit at the feet of teachers mm. you know like Howard Thurman yeah. or James Cone or you know um I don't know to to get it to get a better understanding of what does it look like to follow Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it helped me come back, yeah. you know? I don't know, come back. That's like the wrong way to say it. <laughs> but it, it helped me better to, to see this thing better without me being so integral to the center of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear the word is, uh, but actually two words, power and control. Mm-hmm. When I think about the kingdom of God, am I going to go out and have an impact? What kind of impact? How do I exponentially increase my power to have impact, to control? And uh, This could be the preacher who needs to control the scriptures. You can know this from a preacher who has lots of control over the scriptures or a preacher who you can tell is being controlled by the scriptures that's surrendering and submitting to that. You can tell this from worship leaders, you know, how much control do they have over all of their music instruments, their liturgical tools, or how much are we surrendering? So, so even in my best efforts, I could start doing Enneagram work, you know, if I'm made as a person who likes to get things done, I like to see change. Um, so I have certain controls. You do. You have certain tools as, a, as, a, as an effective person from the heart center. Boy, I just don't feel it right now. Who cares if you feel it? Or an intellectual person. What kind of control do I have with my mind? 
Um, so again, this vocabulary of integration, what are you being called to and how am I then cooperating with the power of God in this? So yeah, we do have agency here, but how do I become a Christian who is responsive to the power of God rather than worrying about my power? And I don't think we necessarily know that we're doing it, you know? Nope. I, I think one of the things, this is going to maybe sound kind of weird. Um, I think one of the, the gifts of a really tragic experience for me was that I think um, it opened me up to being able uh-huh. to, uh, I think vulnerability mm-hmm. can be such a powerful mm-hmm. and important part of Christianity mm-hmm. that that whiteness mm-hmm. can sometimes shield us from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I was uh, about to leave the nest and become, you know, like go out and pursue the world as a college student and mm-hmm. find my mark and be effective and all that kind of stuff, like right before that stage of my life, my dad died suddenly. Mm-hmm. One minute he was alive, the next minute he was dead. And mm-hmm. I was also kind of a budding evangelical Christian at that time. And I think, you know, there were a lot of things that were just terrible about that. But one of the things that I think happened for me in that uh, tragedy was that it uh, exposed a lie that I had believed Mm -hmm. about, yeah, I'm going to go out and get it. Mm -hmm. And what it looks like for me uh, to know God loves me is if I can go out and get it and do it and make it happen. You know, and all of a sudden, this terrible thing happened that I had no control over that changed the trajectory of my whole life. Um, That was, I think, such a profound vulnerability that happened to me that I really think it was the beginning of this opening to the idea that like, hey, guess what? This, it's not a formula. Um, I can't do it right mm-hmm. and affect the outcome. Mm-hmm. And that the parts of Christianity that have told me that I can mm-hmm. are just not true. Mm-hmm. It's changed mm-hmm. the way I read the Bible. It changed the way I understood prayer. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it messed those things up sure. in some pretty like significant sure. ways. I'm not trying to be like, oh, that's great. <laughs> but, but I do think that that, so there's something about that that feels so like, oh yeah, that's what we mean when we talk about uh, that God became human, that that the power of the cross. Like, there's this profound truth that when we approach the stuff from a place of vulnerability, mm-hmm. it just changes. It changes how we engage, mm-hmm. as opposed to effectiveness mm-hmm. or um, power or helping fixing saving survey. Wow. You know what I mean? Wow. I, yeah. And, and I think that's one of the, the lies that maybe folks who don't grow up mm-hmm. white mm-hmm. American don't have to shed, yeah. but I really did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really getting at what we're trying to say about what does crit- critical race theory reveal to me, this post-colonial critique, is the amount of control we have had that's in our DNA generations back to Europe. And so the antidote 
to that is not white guilt. It's another kind of vulnerability. And so to going back to to the, the vocab of humility, we often want to spiritualize and make humility this, <laughs> of course, I've acquired humility. We're talking about humiliation. Mm-hmm. That's where God leads us by his mercy, where we make mistakes on this journey, where, yeah, the experience of losing your father, I don't know if the humiliation is the right word, it's devastation. Yeah. And, and this is the insane, uh, severe part of God's work that does not allow space for any rational theodicy, how to explain a good God, a loving God in the face of so much evil. Um, the question is, am I allowing myself to become more dependent upon God? So vulnerability, yeah, I'm think, thankful that you were that vulnerable with us here because that allows me to put the finger on the shame Mm-hmm. that folks are, are feeling on this. Men especially struggle with shame. Yeah. I, I understand all of us, we're, we're largely in a masculine culture where we're all tuned up to not want to experience that shame. Uh, but Oh, I think that is so mm-hmm. key to this conversation. Mm-hmm. The idea you can't defer to someone mm-hmm. if deference has been taught to you mm-hmm. as weakness or mm-hmm. and, and it's shame-inducing for you. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't really take a look at your own, um, the ways like I used to think mm-hmm. something and now I know it's wrong. I think that, and to show back up again, if mm-hmm. that's shame inducing for you, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. I just think that that word is so critical to mm-hmm. this, which is why I think this idea of being seen mm-hmm. is so freeing. You know, we, the story of like, of Hagar, mm-hmm. um, Hagar is just the definition of vulnerability. (laughs) Gets cast out completely on her own in the wilderness. No one loves her. No one sees her. No Mm -hmm. one cares. Mm -hmm. Uh, But God sees her and she gives the God the name, the Mm -hmm. one who sees. So that like speaks to me on so many Mm -hmm. levels. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's such an important... God still... Not still. (laughs) God loves us right? And sees us Mm -hmm. in all of our complexity. Mm -hmm. It will take my whole life to understand that. Mm -hmm. But the the only way I can show up again after I mess up in these conversations or in these relationships or on this journey, or the only way I could show up again and be like, hey, guess what? I used to think this thing, but then I learned something new. And now I think this, Mm -hmm. Which is full of shame. I think yeah. the only thing that allows me to be able to continue to show up is like, I am the beloved. Yeah. What is true repentance? That's the the subtitle, a, a, a call to repentance and repair. We're not asking people to feel ashamed. We're not asking people to to think lowly of themselves, to beat themselves up. That would be the white guilt of this. We're, we're actually calling for true repentance, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, where I see the shame, but I even surrender to, to that because I'm turning to God's love and hope. So I think that's an awesome place to bring our talk to a, a conclusion. What I want to point out in, in the third stage in terms of institutional, I'm so glad that 
they shine a light on Brian Stevenson's work on incarceration that obviously cuts really uh, close to home for me. So uh, as a follow-up to this episode, I will be sharing a conversation I had with one of my dearest brothers, Latorius Willis, who will officially be out of prison on June 15th, right before Juneteenth. And uh, again, the two stages here are reparations. Yeah, how do I act to rebuild? But how do I then first become a kind of person who understands that as a thing? Well, my friendship with Latorius has been key for me to become this person who thinks reparations is obvious. So I can't wait to share. I have a video that I'll be sharing with people of when I got to see Latorius a couple weeks ago and then a conversation with him. So Kate, thank you so much for sitting with me. It is a gift and really, really um, it's comforting to have a spiritual friendship mm-hmm. with you. So that's, again, another way to say, if you don't have that listener, um, please find that. Mm-hmm. Conversation. It's true. You know, I think some of, so much of this stuff, it needs to be, we need to say it out loud to people who are also on the journey. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's fun. I think one of the things I like about being middle-aged mm-hmm. is that I got friends who go back a long way. Mm-hmm. So this was really fun because we go back a long way. Yeah. We've changed a little bit since those days yeah. clicking on our Blackberries, I guess. <laughs> Kids and all. I know, right? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So again, I am not soliciting donations to fund the invitation this summer. If you believe in the work that the invitation is doing, what I'm encouraging folks to do is to make a donation, but to earmark it, to be set aside to support the teaching and the growth of the ministry of Denise Kingdom Greer, the Reverend Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer, my pastor. So we're trying to do this reparations work specifically by amplifying her voice. Thank you for considering that. There's a donation link on the invitationcenter.org where you can find a place to do that. Again, it is an honor and a gift to have you along on this journey with us. Until next time, amen. Amen.